Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 144 for May 24th, 2009. Since 1981, Zara has been developing groundbreaking graphics applications. The company is located in the UK, but was acquired by Magix AG of Germany in 2007. One of their most recent products is called Zara Web Designer. I call it Speedy Design with a flair. For $50, you won't find a more powerful, faster, or more versatile web page designer than Zara Web Designer. This isn't the right tool to use if you have a site with hundreds of pages, but if your goal is to create a high-style site without spending a lot of money, don't overlook Zara Web Designer. In the beginning, Zara developed applications for computers that are all but unknown on the U.S. side of the Atlantic, the Acorn Atom, the BBC Micro, but also for Z88 systems and the Atari ST. Later, Zara added development for Windows applications and now has some applications for Linux. In the mid-1990s, Zara developed an application that Corel considered so much of a threat that it licensed the technology for a couple of years. Oddly, later versions of Corel applications contained many of the advances first seen in Zara. At the high end, Zara offers Zara Extreme Pro, and at the low end, WebStyle, 3D, and MenuMaker. Zara Web Design is somewhere in the middle, probably tending toward the top. As you probably know, my primary web development tool is Adobe Dreamweaver and the associated CS4 applications. That's not going to change because Zara Web Designer doesn't offer tools that I need. Templates and library items, for example. And maybe I should stop here just a moment and talk a little bit about templates and templates. Yes, Zara does have templates. If you open the program, you'll find templates. But they're not the same kind of templates that Dreamweaver uses. The terms simply describe different things. A Zara template is just a starting point. You can change the design as much as you want, but the changes you make to the template will not be reflected in any of your other pages. On the other hand, Dreamweaver templates are more like master pages. When you change something in the template, whether it be text, graphics, or some other template element, the change will be reflected in all of the pages that are based on that template. This is a critical feature for a site with dozens, hundreds, or thousands of pages. So for me, there's no question. Dreamweaver is the application. But Dreamweaver comes with a massive learning curve, one that can easily take a decade or more to master. If you've ever used a computer, you'll probably be able to install Web Designer and start using it productively within an hour. Just don't expect all of the powerful features you'd find in Dreamweaver. I felt that it was important to get that out of the way right at the outset because most of the rest of my report about Zara Web Designer is going to seem more like a love letter than a review. The program generated a lot of wows from me. And it's probably important to mention this at this point. I have been working with software for, oh, 25 years or more, and I'm fairly adept at picking up the intricacies of a given program. And I have worked with other Zara applications. 
but I hadn't seen Web Designer until I installed it. I did not read the instructions. I simply started clicking around to see if I could make it do something useful, or maybe break it. So I was thinking, what if somebody sold hypoallergenic purple cats? Stick with me for a minute. This really does fit in. We're going somewhere with this. They would probably want a website, and I just happened to have a photo of a purple cat, one I had painted while working with Photoshop. No cats were actually painted in the process of designing this site. So I removed the background from the image, created a banner, and exported it. Then I opened Zara Web Designer, icons down the left side of the screen, menu items. Hmm. So what can I do to create a page? Well, I found it was pretty easy. There is an option to do that from the file menu. I didn't see a special import graphic item on the menu, so I just selected import, pointed to the banner, which of course is a graphic, and it appeared on the page. doesn't get much easier than that. Then I selected what looked like it was probably the text tool. had an A on it. What else would it be? Drew a text box and started typing. Then I imported another cat picture, selected a list of menu buttons. At some point, I changed the size of the text box and noticed that depending on which handle I grabbed, I could either resize the text or leave the text in its original size and change the size and shape of the containing box. At this point, I'd been working for, oh, maybe five minutes. Then I wondered if I could rotate the photo. This would be difficult to do in Dreamweaver. In fact, it can't be done in Dreamweaver. I would have to do it in Photoshop and create transparencies and then put the image in, and it would be difficult. I grabbed one of the handles on the image and twisted it. The image rotated, but it also began intruding into my text. So I right-clicked the photo, noticed that it could repel text under the image. I selected that. The text stayed put. It wasn't repelled at all. Then I went back and read what the drop-down box said. It said, repel text under the image. Well, my text was on top of the image. So I selected the text, checked the arrange item on the menu, thinking it would probably be the right place to find a way to move the text backward in the stacking order and put it under the image. And that's exactly what happened. In my opinion, everything should be that easy. The text, I found, is already automatically repelled by the menu buttons. That's just built in, so I didn't have to change anything there. And then I wondered, well, I've rotated the picture. I've caused the text to be repelled. Professionals would call that a wraparound, by the way. I wonder if I could put some text on top of the text. Like Maybe I'd like a really large but transparent word on top of the block of text. So... I created the word yes, stretched it to be large, plopped it on top of the text, found an icon that suggested it might have something to do with transparency, and there you go. I now have text that's on top of the other text, and it actually extends into the photo a bit. Because it's on top, it's not repelled. On my final test, to see what I could do in terms of high design, I wondered if I could tilt the text. In fact, I tilted both pieces of text, the large word yes and the body text underneath. Tilted one to the right, tilted the other to the left. No problem. Well, maybe a problem. The text is still editable in Zara Web Designer. However, when I would export that text for use on the web, it will no longer be text. The text will be silently converted to a graphic 
and it will be displayed using CSS positioning, layers, and transparencies. That is a very tall order for an inexpensive application such as Zara Web Designer. But there's a downside to this approach. Search engines will no longer see the text, and the text will be slightly fuzzy because it's now a graphic. Possibly more significant is the fact that it will make the page totally inaccessible to anyone who is blind and who uses a text-to-speech reader to read web pages. But maybe this isn't a really serious problem. It affects only text that you have rotated. Text that you don't tinker with will remain text. I mentioned templates. Zara Web Designer comes with dozens of templates, hundreds of ready-made menus, banners, and other elements. If you start a site with one of the existing templates, a lot of your work's already going to be done. So I picked one of those and decided to see what I could do in terms of creating a page with a bunch of photos on it. I got a starter page that had nine images. It would be nice, I thought, if I could just open the Windows Explorer, navigate to the image I wanted to use, and drop it into the design where I wanted it to appear. And Maybe Zara Web Designer would just simply take it from there, resize the image, do all the magic that it needed to do, but I figured that couldn't possibly happen. That's exactly what happened. I dropped the image from the Explorer into what looks like a slide mount, and bingo, done. I repeated the task eight more times, and the page was done. I also found I could push and pull the handles of the image to resize it, move it in the frame, and even rotate it. There was a navigation bar at the top of the screen. I had a little trouble trying to figure out how to modify it. I tried double-clicking it, then I tried selecting the button and examining the various menus, nothing doing. Finally, I right-clicked, noticed the Properties option. They really have made this easy. You can see all this, including the two pages I designed on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, and you may notice that my hands never left my arms during the entire demonstration. And I have to tell you, yes, I really did perform these feats of apparent magic without reading any of the instructions. In fact, the instructions are minimal. There are some. They do exist. I found them later. The online instructions consist of several pages that offer tips on how to use the features you might not find if you're not looking for them. And because Zara has a unique way of assigning colors for fill and outline, you probably will want to review at least that section. Bottom line for Zara Web Designer, four cats. Easy, fast, inexpensive, and it works. Normally with something like that, the tagline is pick any two. But Zara Web Designer, for just $50, puts an impressive amount of power in your hands. For more information, check the Zara website. There's a link there, of course, from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Do you have Wi-Fi? If you have a notebook computer, you undoubtedly do. Wi-Fi allows you to use the notebook computer throughout the house if you have wireless built into the house or in the backyard. It also makes it possible for you to use the computer when you're in a hotel in New York City, Omaha, or Fargo. That's the thing about Wi-Fi. It seems to be just about everywhere. Well, maybe not everywhere, but it is a lot of wares. Jiwire graphically displays Wi-Fi locations on a map on your computer and differentiates between free locations, such as libraries, and paid sites, such as McDonald's and Starbucks. If you'll be traveling with your notebook computer... Be sure to check out Jiwire before you leave. That way you'll know where you can go to get free Wi-Fi service, or paid service if you want to pay for it. Jiwire is a free service. It shows Wi-Fi resources essentially around the planet. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find some images showing central Ohio. 
lots of blue icons all over the place. The blue ones indicate paid Wi-Fi locations and some green ones. Those are the free locations. I took a look at downtown and primarily in the short north area. No shortage of free Wi-Fi selections there. Zooming into downtown Columbus, I wanted to see what was available. More paid locations than free. That's to be expected. But free locations do exist. Libraries and coffee shops, except for Starbucks, often provide free service. So next, I tried the area of Harlem, where I normally stay when I'm in New York City. I usually stay on 120th Street near Marcus Garvey Park. And there's a free Wi-Fi spot just a couple of blocks away on 124th in a New York Public Library branch. There's another one shown on 122nd Street. It appears to be the Lenox Terrace building, but it's perhaps an apartment or condo that provides free service for tenants, probably not for people who just wander by. But JiWire also shows Wi-Fi access globally. I took a look at Moscow. It's amusing, or or maybe not so amusing, to note that no Wi-Fi exists in the Kremlin. (laughs) Well, I guess that's to be expected. Outside the central city, a fair number of Wi-Fi hotspots exist, and even a few are provided without cost. Last summer, following a storm that knocked out power for my area for an entire week, I used the city's free Wi-Fi access at the library, and I also used a Wi-Fi hotspot provided by Panera Bread. Panera, in fact, is one of my favorite companies. If you spend any time traveling, make sure you know where the closest Panera Bread is. Besides having free Wi-Fi, they have some excellent food. Here's something I'll bet you've been annoyed by. Have you ever tried to delete a file only to be told that Windows won't allow it? The dialog box may tell you that the file is in use, but it probably won't tell you what application is using the file. This is more than a trivial annoyance. Windows 7 will finally resolve the problem. Windows 7 will display a file-in-use dialog. If you try to delete a file, it's still open in some process, and it will also name the process that has locked the file. In many cases today, with Windows XP, Windows Vista, or earlier versions of Windows, you can't find that information. The only solution may be to restart your computer to release all the file locks. There is, you'll be happy to know, a better way. And it's free. Cedric Colum says that he was so amazed by the fact that Windows XP does not give this kind of control that he decided to write a freeware tool. Apparently, there was a need. It has been downloaded more than two million times. Unlocker can be run with Windows so that it's always available, or you can start it only when you need it. That's the approach I take. You would need it when you try to delete a file or a directory and see a message that says, cannot delete file, access is denied, or there has been a sharing violation, or a source or destination file may be in use, or file is in use by another program or user, or make sure disk is not full or write protected and that the file is not currently in use. Those are all of the messages you can see. Well, not all of them, but those are a lot of the messages you can see when Windows won't let you delete a file. Here's a trivial example of how this works. I started by creating a Word document and then saving it to the desktop. Word, of course, had the file open when I tried to delete it. Windows noticed that, told me the file was locked. And when I did that, I got a bit of a surprise. With Office 2007 and Windows XP Service Pack 3, the dialog box does identify the application that has the file locked. So that might be an addition that came as part of SP3, part of some other update, or maybe it's dependent on Office 2007, or maybe some combination of those. 
in any event, in a lot of cases, the result is simply going to be a dialogue that tells you the file is in use but not what's using it. So in this case, with a Word document, the user is going to be obvious. But if you're cleaning up the temp directory and you're trying to delete a file called perflib underscore perfdata underscore 770.dat, the application that has locked the file will be far from obvious. In this case, the file was created by Carbonite, and I didn't want Unlocker to allow me to delete it. If Unlocker is running, after you clear a dialog like that, Unlocker opens, shows you the process that has the file locked, and allows you to unlock it or even kill the process that has it locked. The second step is one to be taken with extreme caution. If you're not sure what a process does, why it's running, what the implications of killing it are, it's best just to unlock the file, if you're absolutely sure that unlocking the file and deleting it is safe. If you're not, don't do that either. If you don't have Unlocker running in the tray, it's still installed as a context handler, so you can right-click any file or directory and then choose Unlocker to see if a file is locked by a process and, if it is, to release the lock so you can delete it. That's my preferred method of operation. As with all such utilities, there is a danger that an uninformed user will create a large problem rather than solve a small one. But it's a handy tool to have in the kit, so five cats. Use only as directed is the standard warning that comes with any utility, but if you know why you need to delete a locked file, this utility gives you the how. In short circuits, Windows 7 has arrived on my notebook computer. I wanted to wait until after a Columbus Computer Society event where I needed a fully operational notebook computer with Adobe and Microsoft applications on it. wanted to wait until after that to install Windows 7. From what I had read, I understood that the release candidate version of Windows 7 would not be able to update an existing Windows installation. So I was prepared to format the drive and reinstall everything. But I got some good news. When I booted up the installation DVD, the procedure told me that updating Windows XP was available only if the installer was started while Windows was running. So I rebooted, started Windows, then started the installer. It certainly suggested that upgrading was going to be possible. It wasn't. At first, it tricked me into saving some files that might be important after the upgrade. Two hours, two hours of copying files, which I never needed because the updating really doesn't work. I suspect that the version as released later this year will allow some sort of upgrade path from Windows XP. But after wasting a total of four hours, I was finally able to start on the actual installation. That part took 30 minutes. So far, after using Windows 7 for less than a day... I found several things I like. I liked Vista's appearance, and I think 7 is even better. 7 isn't as fast as XP, but it's a lot faster than Vista. Security gets in the way a lot less than it did in Vista, although it can still be a bit bothersome. And it is far better, almost Mac-like, in finding and attaching to both wired and wireless networks. But, of course, I found some things I don't like. The moronic decision to hide extensions of known file types persists, and there is no kinder word than moronic for that. I can actually think of several words that would be both more rude and more accurate. That is a decision Microsoft never should have made, and it should not persist in this version. Then there's the quick launch area. It wastes a huge amount of space, 
and I don't really much care for what they've done with the system tray, or you may know it as the notification area, where by default the AVG antivirus status icon is hidden. Why? So far, I haven't been able to find a way to make the Windows Explorer behave the way I'd like it to. I suspect I'll find a way to do that, and if not, it's not too objectionable the way it is. And some things are just unbearably slow. During the installation, Windows 7 created a backup of 23,900 files. I selected the directory and deleted it. That process took nearly 20 minutes. Now, I've not been using Windows 7 long enough to tell even a small bit of the story accurately. So, for now, I'll just leave it there. This week, the New York Times carried a report on broadband coverage around the world. The report itself was an effort by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and it took into account the number of broadband subscribers per 100 residents. Denmark was at the top with about 37, Mexico at the bottom with about 7, and the U.S. was a little above average with 36. It also considered price. Highest cost is in the Slovak Republic, lowest in Sweden. Those in the U.S. pay higher than average prices. What the article misses is the average speed of broadband, which can range from a relatively paltry 500 kilobits per second to 50 megabits per second. On average, U.S. prices are considerably higher for the same class of service than are the prices paid in Europe and Asia. Among the nations with more widespread broadband than the United States are Iceland, Canada, France, Germany, and the U.K. Among the nations with lower average monthly fees are France, Sweden, the U.K., and Korea. The OECD report does not rank every nation of the world, but only those that are members of the organization. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.